Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It's Friday, June 23rd, 2023, and this is Markets Daily from Coindesk. I'm Adam B. Levine here again with George Kaloudis for your Daily News Roundup. On today's show, we're talking Bitcoin, UK mortgages, top headlines, and more. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Bitcoin, Ether, and other top-traded tokens are down slightly on the day, but up quite a bit against our Wednesday update. BTC has chalked up more than a 20% price gain since Thursday of last week and may now take a breather. That's a message from crypto service provider Matrixport's Bitcoin Greed and Fear Index, also known as the GFI, which has jumped to 93% from under 10% in roughly one week. The index attempts to track the overriding market emotion, with readings above 90% signaling greed or excessive optimism, and those below 10% representing extreme fear or pessimism. It's been quite a week. Quote, Our Bitcoin greed and fear index has reached exuberant levels in record time. It could be well advised to lock in some gains for short-term traders. Head of research and strategy, the company said in an email. Meanwhile, quote, this is truly welcome news for the market, but perhaps not quite the beginning of the end of the bear market. Tim Frost, CEO of digital wealth platform Yield App, noted cautiously in an email to Coindesk, continuing, This pump is likely down to a lot of institutional buying on BlackRock and other institutional applications for a Bitcoin spot ETF, which has not been approved. And if these get rejected by the US SEC like all the others, this may well lead to another tumble, end quote. Ether, the second largest crypto and market value, is up relative to our show on Wednesday, but remains below its recent $1,900 level. And we've got a bit more today in the headlines, so we're going to keep it short. Today's crypto coverage comes courtesy of Coindesk Markets Analyst, Lila Ledesma, and I'm Car Godblade. Bitcoin is currently trading at $30,046. That's up 3.84% since our show on Wednesday, while Ether is trading at $1,871 per token. That's up almost 3% over the same time period, according to the Coindesk Market Index. And speaking of the Coindesk Market Index, we're looking at an absolute reading this morning of 1,262. That compares against Wednesday's reading of 1,220 and represents a 3.37% increase across top-traded tokens over that time period. Now, before we get to today's headlines, let's take a quick look at traditional markets. In the U.S., indexes continued to fall, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 8 tenths of a point, the S&P 500 down 1%, and the Nasdaq Composite falling 1.5% since Wednesday. In Europe, the trend was the same, but the numbers were bigger. The regional stock 600 and London's FTSE 100 each fell by about 1.2%, while Germany's DAX dropped by one8 
In Asia, same story, different continent. China's Hang Seng fell one and three quarters of a point, the Shanghai Composite was flat, while in Japan, the Nikkei 225 fell by 2.36%. In commodities markets, Brent crude, that's the international benchmark for oil, returned to the lower end of its recent range, down some 4% since Wednesday, and priced at just under $73 per barrel. Gold, meanwhile, rose slightly, changing hands at $1,946 per troy ounce. First Republic bucked the trend, which sort of makes sense as a penny stock, and continued its recent rise, up a bit under 3%, and currently sitting at $0.26 cents per share. Today's traditional markets coverage draws from MarketWatch. Stay tuned for after the break, where we're going to take a look at some top headlines. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As we've told you many times on this show before, monetary authorities around the world are faced with a pretty impossible task which is to rapidly raise interest rates they'd held artificially low for too long, arguably over the last dozen years, but more specifically as part of the government response to COVID-19. This is, of course, all in an attempt to fix an earlier policy mistake they made, which has caused record high levels of inflation, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Trying to fix problems with monetary policy is a lot like a medical intervention. It can, under certain circumstances, be really helpful or even life-saving. But if improperly applied or managed, it can actually create new, much worse problems. If you break your leg, a cast can help it heal. But if you leave that cast on for three years instead of three months, the limb will atrophy, and you're much worse off than you were before. That's a long way of saying that authorities around the world did almost exactly that. It's medical malpractice for the monetary world. Over the last year, those authorities have moved to rapidly correct their error, but have done so at such a rapid pace that it's necessarily causing more problems. This week, we saw the most recent of those emerge in Great Britain, as the government moves to address an imminent mortgage crisis that is expected to affect millions of homeowners. But first, a little background. If you buy a house in the U.S., you're probably going to get a mortgage, and that mortgage is probably going to have a fixed interest rate that will run for the 15 or 30 years of the loan. That's not every mortgage that's made in the U.S., but it is the average one. And that's in sharp contrast to many other nations, the UK included, where the idea of a fixed interest rate on your mortgage exists, but is more typically limited to a three- or a five-year teaser period, at which point the amount of interest that needs to be paid floats with the current rate. And that works great for borrowers when interest rates are held artificially low. But earlier this week, the Bank of England, that's the UK's central bank, raised their core rate by another half a percentage point, bringing it up to match the Fed's current target of over 5%. Quoting from Bloomberg and speaking about the current more than 9% official inflation level, quote, The squeeze is eating into incomes, taking away money that might otherwise be spent on stores, bars, and restaurants, creating a drag on an economy forecast to grow just 0.2% this year. Only Germany is expected to have a weaker performance among major developed economies. The effect on the mortgage market of the central bank tightening has been dramatic. Since March of last year, the average two-year fixed deal has tripled to 6%. For homeowners coming off fixed deals, it will be painful, end quote. This is not the first time that this abrupt monetary policy move, an increase to the core interest rate of more than 2,000% over about a year's time frame, has caused something significant to break. Last October, we told you about the near collapse of most UK pension funds, which had all adopted essentially the same correlated strategy that relied on low interest rates relative to government debt. The extremely briefly tenured Prime Minister Liz Truss catalyzed that moment of crisis with an attempt to bring Great Britain's financial picture back into something that makes a little more sense, at least at a high level. But the system itself simply couldn't tolerate a return to normal, and so, to avert the collapse, those plans were abruptly and swiftly abandoned, the pension funds were bailed out, and Truss was booted from power in the aftermath after a record short tenure. The nation's current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is not eager to repeat that fate, and so, unsurprisingly, his administration is at least attempting to get out in front of this mortgage issue with, while not a bailout, 
more manipulations intended to patch over some of the damage caused by the last few rounds of manipulation. Quoting again from Bloomberg on a different article, quote, For those people who are at risk of losing their home, lenders have agreed there will be a minimum 12-month period before there's a repossession without consent, an official said in an interview with Sky News. That should help mitigate concerns of immediate foreclosures even as mortgage costs surge, end quote. But the problem here is too big to bail out, and as costs continue to rise at a record pace, the problem is much larger than just mortgages. Quote, both Hunt and Sunak ruled out direct government assistance themselves, and there was no mention of help for renters, who could see the higher costs passed on to them by landlords. Banks, meanwhile, have consistently said the existing measures are appropriate, and so far, they see little signs of distress among customers. Almost all people who were given mortgages in the past five years faced affordability stress tests for rates of up to 7%, end quote. Other notable parts of the package include the ability to negotiate with your mortgage lender without it impacting your credit rating, and the ability to go to an interest-only or renegotiated rate, but then to be able to revert it to your current deal within six months with no penalty. You will notice that none of these actions are solutions. They are merely the latest round of manipulation stretching out the time frame in hopes that they can fix the underlying problem before the pain hits home, at least in a way that's politically untenable. In reality, though, just like with eviction moratoriums here in the U.S., this will likely just extend the pain. We've got two Bloomberg stories linked in the show notes on this one. Meanwhile, banning crypto may not be the best way of mitigating its associated risks, the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, said yesterday, just months after suggesting that approach as an option, because, according to the institution, it would prevent countries gaining the associated benefits. Quote, while a few countries have completely banned crypto assets given their risks, this approach may not be effective in the long run, the IMF said without any sense of irony in a website post about interest in central bank digital currency adoption in Latin America and the Caribbean. Continuing, quote, the region should instead focus on addressing the drivers of crypto demand, including citizens' unmet digital payment needs, and on improving transparency by recording crypto asset transactions in national statistics, end quote. Latin American countries like Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, and Ecuador in 2022 were among the top 20 for global adoption of crypto assets, the IMF said. And yet, after negotiations with the IMF, Argentina banned crypto use in May of that year. The IMF, of course, along with the World Bank and the Bank for International Settlements, have been some of the loudest voices among the powerful supranational organizations who sit atop the current dollar global reserve system. They are, unsurprisingly, not fans of crypto, and have been somewhat trapped by both rising interest in it from nations who do not benefit from the dollar system as it exists today, and, more specifically, the power that these supranational organizations can exert on sovereign nations, while being yet unwilling to acknowledge that this is their actual concern. Instead of acknowledging that, they couch their resistance to these decentralized technologies in this way, concern for the nations who have often suffered greatly under their reign, when really it has all the hallmarks of concern trolling. No, don't do that thing I don't want you to do, not because it's a risk to me, but because I'm suddenly and inexplicably concerned about you. Worldwide, many countries are exploring central bank digital currencies, or digital representations of their local currencies issued by their central bank, in what is effectively a new version of the old system, which the IMF and its powerful partners would prefer very much, and in contrast to a more open and equitable one. Coindesk's Camille Shumba has more on this story. And now we'll hand over the mic to George Kaloudis to take us home. Thanks, Adam. Yesterday, cryptocurrency custodian BitGo terminated its acquisition of rival Prime Trust after earlier this month reaching a preliminary agreement to acquire the firm for an undisclosed amount amid speculation that Prime Trust was facing bankruptcy. The crypto custody company has had a rocky journey recently. It replaced its CEO in November, 
and in January laid off a third of its staff just days after ceasing operations in Texas. Its subsidiary bank filed for bankruptcy last week, and the firm has been losing clients and deposits to competitors for weeks amid mounting concerns over its business. And then it got worse. The Nevada Department of Business and Industry ordered Prime Trust to cease all activities which violate state regulations, alleging that the company's, quote, overall financial condition has considerably deteriorated to a critically deficient level, and that on or about June 21st, 2023, Prime Trust was unable to honor customer withdrawals due to a shortfall of customer funds caused by significant liability on Prime Trust's balance sheet owed to customers, end quote. Nevada's cease and desist order blocks the company from accepting dollars or cryptocurrency from existing and new clients for custody purposes. This most recent failure just goes to show how important Bitcoin and crypto's core tenet of not your keys, not your coins is. Third-party custodian providers like Prime Trust underpin a meaningful portion of the infrastructure for crypto companies as they are tasked with safely holding assets for clients. But even then, there was some sort of misappropriation at Prime Trust, even though holding assets should be a straightforward and simple business. How the industry learns from another company failure will be interesting. Perhaps companies will take their asset custody solutions in-house to avoid dependencies on the larger custodians, which become choke points. Maybe a radically transparent business will crop up and improve third-party custody solutions. Or maybe we'll continue to make the same mistakes again and again. Coindesk's Jamie Crawley, Danny Nelson, and Nick Day contributed to reporting. Elsewhere, Alameda Research, the hedge fund arm of the bankrupt FTX empire, is seeking the return of $700 million founder Sam Bakeman fried appears to have paid the two co-owners of venture capital firm K5 Global for access to celebrities and politicians. Lawyers for FTX's new bankruptcy management team said in a court filing yesterday that Bankman Freed and the two individuals, quote, knew that these transactions were anything but typical arm's length investments and that Bankman Freed treated the legal entities that he controlled as a slush fund operated with a near total disregard for corporate formalities, end quote. The filing claims that a term sheet was drafted and signed shortly after Bankman Freed attended a party at the home of one of K5 Global's owners, which gave each of the owners $125 million and the promise of billions of dollars to K5 Global and affiliated entities over the next three years. That's some party. Now, a company spending money lavishly isn't in and of itself fraud or cause for concern, but FTX's new management team claims under bankruptcy law that these transfers look like fraud as they were concealed, they had inflated value, and were being made when FTX was allegedly on the verge of insolvency. The millions of dollars moved to K5 and related entities were allegedly a way for SBF to buy access to presidential candidates, actors, reality TV stars, musicians, and multiple billionaires. That's raising eyebrows since there appears to be only a small group of people providing that access. What's more, the term sheet which allowed for the movement of that money was, quote, little more than a cursory list of investment ideas on which no meaningful due diligence was conducted, end quote, with the filing citing an internal note in which Bankman Freed said the company could, quote, consider endorsements with their friends, work with them on democratic politics, or invest in them or some stuff, IDK, end quote. And yes, that is the quote. In an emailed statement provided to Reuters, a spokesperson for K5 said it, quote, was under the impression, like many others, that Sam Bankman fried was completely legitimate and that they were entering into a fair, long-term, and mutually beneficial business relationship. Nice work if you can get it. As with the entirety of the FTX and Bankman fried saga, this is a developing story and certainly one of the many subplots to watch. Coindesk Jack Schickler has a story there. Hey. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode was edited by Ryan. And for those of you still with us, we'd love to hear what you think. You can send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. 